With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Friday, April 30th. And as you've just heard, unless you skipped over the spots, which you should not have done, listen, because people are doing hard work trying to do that, including me reading those spots. Uh, If you are ready to rock and roll, we have a fantastic guest. Her name is Gunjan Kedia. She is a vice chair at U.S. Bank. She has a ton of experience in financial services. We're bringing her on to talk about financial literacy, but you'll see that the conversation goes well beyond that. And I think it's really important for us to talk to folks who have had their experience throughout financial services, and we want to bring that experience to you. So here is our interview with Gunjan Kedia. You've been in this industry for a while. And why do we still have such a hard time understanding basic financial concepts? What is going on in this country where we are failing not just our children, but adults as well? You know, it is not easy material and it's very personal and it's very sensitive and it is taboo in almost every part of the world is what I have observed over my 30 years in the industry. So think about an essential topic that's complicated and technical and taboo to talk about. No wonder we have a financial literacy issue here. So how do you think we need to bring this topic up more organically? Because I think there are oftentimes when people will say to me like, oh, you know, I can't talk to my mother about this, or it's really hard for me to talk to my adult children. Do you have any ice breaking tips for people for how they can get into these conversations? First of all, uh, a warning that the icebreaker may permanently destroy your relationship with the person you're talking to. <laughs> so it is, it, is, uh, it is worth thinking about how do you raise the issue. I have personally found both professionally and personally in just thinking about it, that you need to make it small to start the conversation. You can't wade into like, how much are you worth? You know, how do you feel about your financial security? I think a basic thing about, uh, you know, what does money mean to you, which is such a philosophical topic that doesn't need to get personal if it doesn't want to, or, you know, what was the first thing you really wanted to buy, are all uh, what I call low stress starting points that give people a window to ask you about something that might be in their mind that is bigger than they want to broach in their first sentence. I love that idea about what does money mean to you? Because I used to find when I was a financial planner a hundred years ago, I always found that this was an oddly gendered conversation. And and I don't know if that's still the case, but I would find that often when you talked about money with women, they would talk about freedom and security. Mm-hmm. And often with men, it was a little bit more about keeping score. And And prestige. And prestige, exactly. So do you think that's changed? And and knowing that, should we bring up the conversation in a different way when we talk to, say, our male relatives 
and our female relatives? Well, I'll tell you, this is something that uh, we actually have done recent research on. So it's not just anecdotal. It is very true that women's value of money is very much anchored around safety, security, comfort. And a lot of times men will use words like prestige, swagger, and the score, as you call it. But I don't. I wonder if those are also people uh, living up to the stereotypes expected out of them. You know, I will mm. tell you a lot of women will privately tell me that uh, I was never permitted to be someone who wanted money because it was considered unladylike to, to yeah. use a very old fashioned word. So, you know, maybe this is truth, but the fact is the commonality between both of them is there is just a practical reality to needing to talk about money that has nothing to do with the discretionary, interesting to have conversation over a cocktail party. And you've got to pay your rent. Somebody's nobody, and we're going to live until we are like hundreds of years old, right? The people who are starting now, who's going to pay for your medical expenses? How will you sustain your lifestyle? How will you do all the things that you have passion to do? So the more practical the conversation, I think the less the stereotypes of money. You know, I wrote a book about this, right? And that people really get completely insane and emotional about their money. Those emotions can lead us astray. So I think you're also saying is that we have to make it more concrete that you have to say, yeah, you know, if you 30 year old child of mine that I'm worried about, if you really want to think about this and you are going to live to 100, here's why I need you to put money into your retirement plan now. And that you have to really put it into a very concrete box that they can see. Is that right? Well, my observation is the more concrete and practical and small the easier it is to get the conversation going. And we hope over time that builds on the concepts of how you truly manage your financial wealth, your financial stability well. But I have two teenage sons. And it's very interesting to watch them. I know you have always talked that you should talk to your kids when they're three and five, which I've never had the courage to do. But I did start a few years back. And the first thing I asked them was, if I did give you some more money, what would you do with it? And it was very surprising to see how difficult it was for them to answer the question. Like they didn't immediately say, here's the new Nintendo game, or here's the new, you know, I want the new iPods. Or it was just, they, they thought a lot because it was a scarce resource to them. And they, they, they optimized it in their mind. I thought that was a good sign. I also observed conditioning they are getting from college advisors, from each other, and they talk a lot about uh, building a life based on passion, based on what they want to do, based on interest. And I ask them, well, what about the car you want to buy? Where does that factor into your decision making? And they're like, well, what do you mean? So the, it, it starts with, I think, introducing money as a decision criteria in everything else young kids talk about. And we don't even do that, right? We, we say, Yuma, what sports do you want to play? Where, what is your passion? What do you want to change about the world? How do you want to live your life? Well, what kind of apartment do you want to live in 10 years from now? I mean, so I would just say, let's start including the concept of money and what that would do to you as part of the conversation, not the only conversation. I'm never a believer in obsessing about money too early, but it should be an ingredient. You came to this country in what year? 92. And when you came here as, and you have now these first generation kids, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you um, 
maybe have a foot in both worlds. I talk to a lot of people who um, either they are first generation or their parents are first generation. And there's a whole different viewpoint around like what you're willing to give up, what you're willing to do. And the conversations around money can get really stifling in some ways. So, you know, like my friend's father sort of like rolls his eyes when he was like, oh, we want work-life balance. He's like, I worked in my store for, you know, 70 years and that was my balance, you know, like, so how do you, what, how, what advice can you give to people who, and some of it just like, I started with nothing and I have a lot and now my kids have a lot. Like, so how do you keep your kids grounded and make sure that they don't turn into wackos just because you did really well? And what can you learn from this generation that does seek a little bit more of the balance and does say things like, I want a purpose-driven career? What do you, what's your advice? But I think there's a little to be picked from every um, segment. So, you know, I have family back in Delhi and they are very modest means, but they would never accept any sort of help from me because they're very proud people, but they don't have much. And, you know, we, I have a lot of friends who are very, very ultra high net worth. And so they have a different set of problems, but there is a sort of common link. I think the immigrant culture is very pure in the need for income to live your life. And there's some goodness there, even for very well-off kids who might have hopes of inheriting some money or people who are really low on the income spectrum today to just know that there is nothing very wrong by saying, I need to just think about a basic income so I can have my dignity and I don't need to depend on anyone. So that's, I always say that's a concept that you should teach people if you, you know, if you have a hundred million dollar trust fund, because there's so much personal self-confidence and dignity in being able to earn an income on your own. So I feel that should be common regardless of where you're coming from. I think what I tell my, my immigrant uh, family is to actually learn from the luxury that kids in America today have of thinking about a purpose-driven life, where you're not so anchored around income being the only criteria that you can't think of doing a little bit of both. So that is also a very interesting ingredient. It creates a, a, a good life. So it really does come down to try to create a solid foundation. And when you have the confidence and the courage that comes from that, hey, fly, go for a purpose. And that sort of has been a life philosophy I observe across the spectrum of wealth that I sort of intimately observe in my life and my profession. You started, I guess, as an engineer. Is that right? Because you like you ended up, get, you came here with a degree in engineering. And then what led you to get an MBA? Well, I did start as an engineer. And remember, I grew up in Delhi and it was in the mid 80s and there were hardly any women engineers. And um, and uh, they don't spare you just because you're a woman, you know, it's, 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 it's 120 degree heat and you are doing blacksmithy and foundry and, and, and heat. So it is, it, is, it is sort of a foundation of uh, thought process and, um, and physical work. You know, my father had late in his life an opportunity to come to Washington, D.C. Uh, to be with the World Bank. He was a railways engineer. He was a technical expert and just he had a expertise that was valuable to the World Bank. So it opened up a whole uh, world of opportunity for me that I just never thought uh, had. You know, many years later, I didn't know at the time, I wanted to do an MBA. So he said he'll support me. What I didn't realize was 90% of his after-tax income 
went to pay for my MBA. Oh my, and my God. My mother and him lived on the rest of the money and they never told me about it because I was just not, I didn't have the context to understand how much an MBA meant to someone like my mom and dad. And of course, you know, we are an immigrant family. Over the years, I've tried to pay him back and he gets very offended if I do that. <laughs> and he has then made me pay for other children who, would benefit from it. So that was sort of my support structure. And I went into an MBA because I just, I just thought it was so glamorous. There was nothing sort of more profound than that. I used to, I used to look at this world from very far away, never thinking I could have a step in it. And so here I was, and I studied finance at Carnegie Mellon, and I just loved it. So I built a career in it. And here I am. And you also started as a consultant, right? You were a McKinsey person and you rose up through the ranks and you're in their financial services. And then what led you out of consultancy into these various banks that you've you've worked at? Well, I'll tell you, I loved consulting and it was no desire to run away from the professional aspects of it because it's the ultimate lack of a decision, right? (laughs) You can just sort of, you know, I started my consulting career in technology because that was my background and then stumbled into finance and I could have even kind of renovated myself at a different time. It's a very luxurious career, but I had the luxury of having Ashwin, who's my first child. And in my first six months, it's a very, I was a very young partner at McKinsey. It was a very exciting career. It was a very travel-intensive career. And uh, mm. there was just a one time when I was sitting in Nashville and my flight was delayed 45 minutes. And I had tried so hard. And I walked in and my husband said, oh, my God, baby just went to sleep. And I was like, all right, this is not working for mm. me. And I continued to have a very good career, but it was just less travel intensive for about 10 years while I was having both my children and my husband, you know, and just, it was the dot-com era of the late nineties. You know, he's a very technology focused company and he had started a software company. So one of us had to sort of um, like be home and I was, it was my privilege to be home with my babies. And then when they were six and four, I got a big opportunity in Boston. So then he, sort of traveled and supported my career. So, you know, you know a thing or two about crazy mm-hmm. uh, partnerships we have and we sort of make it all work uh, with, with multiple professions. But that was really my first impetus and then to leave consulting. And then I just love building businesses. There's something very sort of personally satisfying about creating good jobs for people, serving clients, seeing a small business grow into big business. So it's interesting though, in your first, so you worked at BNY Mellon, you worked at State Street. These are big institutional. Now at US Bank, you're in wealth management. So it's almost like you've gone from institutional to the individual. How has that transition been for you? Well, you know, I did a lot of work on wealth management in almost my entire career at McKinsey. So it was not an unfamiliar field, the institutional side, which I still have. So I do a little bit of both. You know, they're very different from the client side, but behind the scenes, the product set, how you run an efficient operation, the digital impact is all very similar. So I will say one thing that is very, very unique about the retail side is a lot of our team members get to feel the impact of the work we do. And in financial services, that has become very important. Uh, When was the last time you saw a movie that depicted financial services in a positive light? I think the last (laughs) one was It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) you 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 see the wolf of Wall Street with like naked women, or you see 
um, you know, the big, sh- it's just the industry is, is portrayed as a fast paced, intellectually interesting, but not perhaps a morally sound organization. And that's a real pity for us who live and try to sort of bring to life the basic stuff that we do do for retail investors, for the person wanting their first loan, the person starting up their own business. But that is easier on the retail side, I think, than the institutional side. And so that's sort of been my big, uh, big uh, moment that I find it easy to motivate my teams because I can remind them of what the impact of our work is. And on the institutional side, you have to just use 10 extra words to get there. Uh, you know, it's so funny that um, I, I always describe myself as somebody, you know, I come of financial services. My dad was in the industry. My, you know, my dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. My my godfather was a trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And my grandfather was, it, you know, ran a publicly traded company. So like I come from this industry and I said the difference between me, my, you know, my pup career days when I was a trader and where I am now is that, you know, I, I can see the industry in very different light. Maybe you can use this analogy because this is how I think about it. I say, you know, I love financial services like I love a, a relative, but the relative that I love is like my aunt, who's a terrible drunk. You know, 90 percent of the time she's great. She's wonderful. She does good things. She's a loving aunt. Ten percent of the time she misbehaves and does something so awful that it makes you forget about the 90 percent of the time she's doing good stuff. So to me, it's like the financial services as an industry. It's sort of like my drunk aunt. I kind of love I love her. But man, she can misbehave sometimes. And it's embarrassing when she does. And that's how I feel about the industry. Like, stop doing that, dum-dums. Why are you doing that again? I'll tell you what we think about, what I think about as uh, someone who's trying to sort of represent the industry in the right way is you do have to remind people of what's at stake here for them personally and how we can help. And, you know, financial literacy is sort of at the forefront of it. A simple, a simple construct of advice given the right way at the right time by the right voice can make a profound difference to the outcomes of your life 30 years from now. And that is what you just have to remind people that this is what we are trying to do. Sometimes it is intervention when somebody is about to make a devastating financial decision that is too big to recover from, like the wrong college with the wrong degree or a house that you will never recover from. And sometimes it is just the motivation that a financial trainer can give you to say, just go another five sit-ups just put away five more dollars into your savings account and 30 years from now, you will be able to afford a lifestyle that is. So, so I do think of it as, uh, as you know, sometimes big interventions, sometimes just small motivations that can change things over, over the course of time. I love that because often I'll say to people on this podcast, I'll say, you know, I am like your coach. Like, I don't want to be your school marm. I don't want to shake my finger at you. I just want to propel you forward. I want you to just take, make the next best decision. I think that, I think there's so much shame around money and um, decisions that people make or don't make. And, you know, when they contact us at the show, what Mark and I try to do is we, we might say like, yeah, that was a dumb mistake, but let's move on. I don't want to dwell on it. Sometimes I'll wonder like what happened that you, that prompted you to make that decision? Cause I want to get to the root, right? Now I really want to say, like, how do we get you out of this? And I think that so much could be avoided if we stopped shaking our fingers at people and just said, okay, you never learned this. I get it. 
let's figure it out. Let's move on. Now, before we conclude, I do want to ask you a couple of questions just because I, I am a huge cheerleader for having women be in financial services. So I am a numbers geek. You know, my favorite class in college was statistics. So a little bit weird. And I'm wondering, we've done a good job of bringing more women in, but we don't seem to be able to keep them in. What do you think we need to do in financial services? And I'm sure it's the same in lots of other industries. What is missing? Why are women getting out before they kind of get to mid and upper management? What's going on? Well, I actually have a very positive outlook on what's going on because I think the numbers are not great, but the trend lines are very, very encouraging in my mind. I used to always talk about this, you know, this tyranny of the 25%, which we were in for a long time where, you know, if you look at the Congress, if you look at college presidents, if you look at executives, you look at boards, you know, it was like 20% or 25% is women. And now, believe it or not, mathematically, my speech is not working for me because it's more like 30%. And, you know, one step at a time, I think there is a pipeline impact that needs a little bit of time. There is a, I mean, you know, Jill, it's just sort of after a while, it's not that we can't be successful, but it's like bloody boring, right? To be among a bunch of men who only talk about stuff that you don't care about. Mm. Now, of course, you know, if you look at US Bank, we have four women on the managing committee. And sometimes the men look at it because we are going off on a tangent on a topic that they are just not interested in. And we're like, we don't care. You know, this is this is going to be, we are going to have a conversation around something that, that we are talking about right now. And there's a level of critical massness that is making a difference here. There are a lot of voices that have become very powerful around topics that were taboo. We are talking about money as a taboo topic. Look at the conversation around the hashtag MeToo movement. I mean, mm. that is a taboo topic in the industry that is now permissible to talk about. So I I would answer that to say if there's any young women hearing your podcast, which I think I hope there are, and there are men listening to the podcast, I feel the industry feels very fresh and different and give us a chance is what I would say. You know, don't rely on the stereotypes of the industry. There's, it's, it's interesting it's dynamic, it's intellectually very global, it's a common factor, and it can be a very sort of unifying force uh, around the world. So I would just say to you, give us a chance. It's a different type of a vibe these days. If one of your sons came to you and said, I can get a job programming without going to college, would you allow it? Well, you you assume I have influence over my kids' decisions, <laughs> which gives me a lot of hope. But I would just say, please, please say hello to me sometimes and call me and I'd be pretty happy with that. I have a great relationship with my my kids because, boy, they ask questions and they're not shy about difficult questions. And what about would you would you be OK if they said I want to skip college? That's do I have to right? go on record and answer that question? No, it's a hard one. But, you know, I think it's interesting because I do think there are families that are coming through the pandemic yeah. and seeing what what really questioning what is the value of college not education but what is the value of this four-year keg party that my kids well, so much i will tell you i am a deep deep proponent of education it lifted me out of a very different economic outlook and i will tell you very categorically educate yourself that doesn't mean it has to be a four-year college by the way that's just an institutional but learn, learn to learn. It will do wonders for your life. And if you don't want to go to college, that's fine. Read a book, listen to podcasts, educate, educate, learn, learn, learn. 
Thanks so much to Gunjan Kedia for joining us. I know it's funny, like we exchanged email addresses when we were done with the interview because I think she's really interesting. And I love how she talks about having conversations about money with your family members. And her particular background is really interesting to me. So I don't know, she might be coming back on. I like her quite a bit. Hope you did too. If you've got a financial question, don't hesitate. Give us a holler. Ask Jill at jillonmoney.com. And if you're listening to this, maybe you're listening to this on your desktop or on a YouTube channel, subscribe to the pod wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Odyssey, Google Play, wherever. I don't care. Wherever you find podcasts, just say Jill on Money and you will find us. We want to remind you to please continue to be careful, wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain your physical distancing, especially if you're inside. I'm sort of thinking about maintaining my physical distancing forever at this point. It just seems like good practice. Lift someone up today. It will make that person feel better and it will make you feel better. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13. Grit, growth, growth. Grace. Talk to you tomorrow.